Uh, get to Psalm 78. Open your, your Bible. Click over on your phone. Um, really want you to have it before you. I told you last week I wanted you to read this ahead of time uh, so you'd be familiar with it because we're not going to read the entire thing. This is, um, so you really just want it in front of your eyes, right? This is the second longest psalm. And my son pointed out this week of, uh, hey dad, the longest psalm, 119, we've been going over for like eight years and you're going to do the second longest psalm all in one go. And yes, the answer is yes. Uh, The reasoning, in case you're curious, is that Psalm 119 can be broken into sections and, and it still retains what you're, you're learning there, whereas this is one continuous, you need to see the whole thing, you need to understand the whole thing for, for you to understand any of it well. So, uh, it was written by a, a guy named Asaph, he was a, a gifted poet, a gifted musician who was in the service, uh, served in the temple. Uh, you can see in your Bible that it is called a, a mascul, that's a term that no one is really certain uh, what it means, it is either some musical term or, or more likely, uh, it's a category of psalm what it, that is about being contemplative, about um, intended for teaching. And, and so that's maybe, right? Uh, again, no one's 100% sure what that means. The, it, it fits the description, though, of 78, as we'll, we'll get into this, right? It's this, this epic historical psalm, and it's telling some of these shadier parts of his, Israel's history, uh, some of the worst things that they have done in regards to the Lord, and, and there's purpose for it to, to teach, uh, for, to learn from the past, and to teach those in the future. Uh, and, and so then, Christians, may, may, may you and I, as, as God's people in the early 21st century, uh, my, my goal, my hope is that we too will learn from, from the past so that we might live rightly in, in the future. Now, the beginning part of this, before we, we read the section we're going to read, right, is if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, hopefully you have, but only after reading the books because they're far superior. Uh, but when the movies begin, there's just this, this black screen and it begins with this voice speaking out of the, the darkness, right? It says, the world has changed. I feel it in the water. And it goes on. And the whole point is to draw you in to this historic story that is about to be told. Well, well Psalm 78, our psalm today, begins in a similar manner. We are, and we're going to read that introduction. And we're going to read a few of the next few lines. And then we're going to stop. And as we go through the psalm, I'll, I'll point out some verses to you. And that's why I need you to have it in front of you. So you're ready to pop back in uh, as we're going, going through it. <clears throat> and uh, So that's what the plan is, okay? So, Psalm 78 first eight verses, beginning in verse one. Hold on, remember I'm old now, I need my glasses. Or a giant Bible. I have both options. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please give us focus so that our minds do not wander this morning, especially with the heat. Uh, Lord, incline our hearts to understand Psalm 78. Give me wisdom and and boldness as I I seek to preach your word faithfully this morning in a way that that honors you, in a way that builds up your people towards lives of, of godliness, towards remembering you, honoring you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so again, it, it begins a lot, right, at the beginning here. It's like the hip-hop hype man in these opening words to draw our attention in. Give ear, O oh my people. Listen to me. Right? To, to put that in the southern version, right? Listen up, y'all. Pay attention. Uh, in, in Psalm 119 last week, we, we learned about this idea of inclining our hearts, inclining our hearts to obey God's word. That was a major theme. In other words, don't be flippant about it, right? But, but rather be deeply committed. Make that your goal, your intention of your heart to obey God's word. That was very clear there. Here in verse 1, we, we see this incline word again. Look at it. Asaph says, incline your ear to the words of my mouth. Be deeply committed to hearing and understanding this psalm. And it's not only true of this psalm, but that's always the way we want to approach God's word, that we incline our, our, our eyes, our ears, our understanding to, to really understand that. Now, he, he follows that up by saying, I will open my mouth in a parable. When, when you hear the word parable, what comes to mind? Do you, do you think of, that's some made-up story that was just to, to, to make a point of some sort, kind of like we see Jesus do often in the Gospels. Is, is that your only concept of parable? Uh, it, it might be. And so I just want you to understand this, that, that prefix of, of parable is that word para. Uh, it means to come alongside of. That's what para means. For instance, a, a paralegal, right? Comes alongside the attorneys to, to assist in that way. Uh, parachurch organizations like, like Crew, like Shepherd's Crossing, right? These are, these are organizations that are not the church but work alongside the church in, in gospel ministry or other mercy ministries, things of that nature. And, and then the ending of parable is, is from a word that means to, to throw. And so you put those together, what are you getting, right? To throw and to come alongside. You're throwing one story along another story or along some truth. Uh, to make a point by comparison. That, that's what a parable is. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. In this case, um, he's throwing, Asaph is throwing Israel's history alongside their current situation to reveal this redemptive purpose, to, to make these, these, these points, which we're going to see as we go through this. Now, uh, the dark sayings that he references in verse 2, th- those are the worst, most shameful bits of Israel histories. Those are the things that, that you really kind of want to wash away and be like, I don't, don't remember any of that. Uh, we've been really faithful always, you know, that, but, but here they are. He is going to bring them out, and he's going to bring them out for a purpose. In uh, verse 4, he says, listen, we're, we're not going to hide uh, our deplorable history from our children. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We are going to, to bring out this. And, and the whole purpose, right, is not just, just to air dirty laundry. The whole purpose is so they can tell of all the glorious things that the Lord has done in spite of that. All the glorious things that the Lord has done for them. And so, the last thing you need before we go forward is to understand this. When, when we are seeing names in here, right, like Jacob, the, these, are, these are not referenced, references to the individual, but rather to the, to the nation or to the tribe that they, they represent. So, in, in verse 5, then, uh, Asaph jumps right into the story 
And if you remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and he represents the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel later, uh, God's chosen people. And God called Israel to, to live different. You're not going to be like all the other nations. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be holy in the sense of, of, of you are set apart and, and different, right? Um, different than these surrounding nations, and he gave them laws to obey. And he also commanded the fathers to teach their children. They need to know this stuff. That's how they need to know it. And as we'll see later, God's people failed to teach the children of God's glorious works over and over and over again. It was in your reflection quotes, uh, one of the D.A. Carson, right? He puts this all into our modern context. One generation believes something. The next generation assumes it. And the third generation will forget and deny it. It's not difficult for us to feel like, or to see that playing out in our own nation's history and in the, in the history of the church in a, in a lot of ways. And so as Asaph gives three reasons then, or now he gives three reasons that the fathers should teach the next generation. The first one we see in, in verse 4, have a look at it. <clears throat> he tells them, right, simply so they will know the glorious things the Lord has done. That's why you tell them. We, we want our children all children everywhere, to, to know what mighty works God has done, what mighty works God has done in creation. In the earth, in the sky, the, the plants and the planets, the, the animals and the mountains, the, the stars and the, and the making of men and women in, in his very image. We, we want children to know all that God has done in redemptive history. Right? It, it's good to know these stories of the flood and the ark and King David and, and the coming of, of Jesus as a, a child in the womb of his mother. Uh, the, the, the holy life and the teachings and the miracles done by our Lord. His, his sacrifice on the cross. His victorious resurrection from the dead. His ascension to the Father. We, we want children everywhere to know <clears throat> how God did mighty works through the apostles. We, we want children to know and to see the mercy of God to Israel uh, over and over and over again. We, we want to know the stories of, of the apostles, right? Even Peter, that, that, that he could deny the Lord three times and yet be forgiven and fully restored. These are things to know. And we should want to recount the works that God is still doing. How God has graciously brought you, a sinner, to faith. These are things we we should be speaking about, sharing, telling the next generation. How, because of Jesus, right, uh, now God sees you as a saint. He sees you as holy. That's, that's who you are today. And parents, your, your children, no, no matter their age, how, they need to know how God has worked to bring you to faith in Christ. How, how he answers an impossible prayers that you have prayed over the years. So too often we think, ah, oh, that's, I mean, we, we can see the way it worked out in a lot of practical ways, and we forget to come back and say, look how the Lord answered this prayer. Look what he's doing, and, and to build up our, our, the next generation that way, how he's, you know, just answered these impossible prayers we prayed. Also, to, to share ways when, when, when you have sinned in spectacular ways and found mercy and grace at the hands of Jesus, Children need to know that. They need to see that, to, to know, right, that following Christ isn't about some ideal of living perfect and, and that's your only hope, right? They need to see the, the mercy and grace that we, we know and have experienced in the gospel. And, and, I, and I don't just mean your own children either, right? That's specific here. But, but my children need to hear with their ear, own ears how God is working in your lives. 
all of our covenant children of various ages, college and 40-year-olds, you know what I mean? We need to hear this. And no matter what the age, we need to hear the way God is working in our life. And, and, and that's also <clears throat> true of children outside this covenant community. <clears throat> there are people in your life that you have influence over. And I'm not saying you have to sit down and, and take them through some massive curriculum. But when you have opportunity <clears throat> to point to the works that God has done in your life and in the history of the church and in biblical history... Take those opportunities. Tell the next generation. Um, right? Are, are there ways for you to share the glorious deeds of the Lord with them? There are. We, we just have to look for them. We just have to step up and actually do it when it'd be easier not to. Now, the second reason we are to tell the next generation of God's glorious deeds is, is what we see in verse 7. Have a look there. <clears throat> so that they should set their hope in God. Right? That's the goal. So that they will set their hope in God. Not just biblical knowledge for the sake of biblical knowledge not, not so they can win some you know bible memory contest or something like that but but knowledge that leads to faith in christ that leads to worship of god we, we live today in, in a culture that prioritizes sports and academics and social things and making money and so many other things we as the people of god must be different different we, we must teach our children to set their hope on god and that means teaching them how to prioritize things in life, to prioritize the Lord over everything else. The third reason we are to tell the next generations also in verse 7, uh, that they not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We, we too need to hear of God's mighty works and redemptive history in our lives so that we will keep God's commandments. Right? You think, well, how? What does that mean? Now listen to this. Richard Phillips puts it this way. It's really helpful. He says, <clears throat> how often is it precisely because we forget God's power that we do give in to sin, failing to pray for his way of escape? We find ourselves in these tempting situations and just wave the white flag. We forget that the Lord is powerful enough to, to pull us through, whatever it might be. There's also... Kind of a fourth reason given in verse 8. Uh, the generation before, uh, he says, is stubborn and rebellious. They were not faithful to God. And, and so if, if the children keep on this same path, and if, and if this generation keeps on the same path, if we won't remember the Lord, if we won't remember his mighty deeds, we will be just like them. It will continue in the way they're going. It's, it's like in that Cats in the Cradle song. I... I don't know if y'all probably don't know what I'm talking about. The older folks probably do because it used to be played all the time, right? That there's this father that has no time for his son and, and at the end of the song you, you realize his son grows up and he now has no time to sit and speak with his father. And, and you can feel it when, when he sings that, that hauntingly regretful line right at the very, very end where he says, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. I think that's the first time I've ever sang in a sermon. I apologize. And, and so Psalm 78 is, is calling for change so that we don't grow up to be like that unfaithful generation. And the change is to remember the Lord, remember what he's done, remember his word, remember the works that he's been doing. Uh, beginning in verse 9 then, Asaph tells the story of, of Ephraim or Ephraim. There's, I looked up how to pronounce that. I went really far and I looked up two things and they pronounced it different. And so I waved the white flag in that regard. Um, so Ephraim is what I'm going to say. 
Uh, again, not the man himself, but the, but the tribe of Ephraim. And now Ephraim it may seem like a weird place to start because how many, if I was to say, just name one of the 12 tribes, that would be the first one that came to mind? Any of you? Okay, not many. Uh, what about Judah? Would you have thought of Judah? Yeah, mostly Judah, right? Um, because it's, it's this thing, right? It, it's weird to start with, start with Ephraim because it's kind of like talking about, you know, who's significant in the mu- music industry? And, and instead of bringing up like Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift or someone, suddenly you're bringing up Guns N' Roses or New Kids on the Block, and you're like, well, I don't think they are. Uh, right? you, you, you see, Ephraim was the most prominent of the 12 tribes in the early years of Israel. They, they were the big thing. They, they were, you know, the New York City. They, they, they were the significant thing on the map. Um, and, and that was where a lot, of, a lot of what God was doing was actually happening in, in that region, in that tribe. But, but by the time that Asaph writes this, Judah is now the most prominent. In verses 9 to, to 16, Tel Ephraim's downfall, there's this, this unidentified battle. Uh, there's this, their failure to keep God's covenant this failure to obey God's law, and, and he says they've forgotten the works and the wonders that God did for them, right? They, they just thought, here we are, we're pretty great. He, he gives some examples. He goes through their, their deliverance from, from Egypt, from slavery there. He, he goes through God leading them in the, in the, in the wilderness with a cloud of fire and, and cloud through the desert, and he goes through the water coming out of, of rocks. Now, all these things that they should be deeply grateful for, Right? You just think, look at all these works and think, oh, look what the Lord has done for us and be grateful. Um, but instead, well, look at verse 17. See what it says? It says, yet, right, all these good works that God has done for them, yet they sin still more against God. And my heart is so quick to judge them. How could they be so dumb? Right? How, so entitled. How can they be so ungrateful? Maybe, maybe we should be not so quick to criticize their sinful ways. I mean, after all, how, how often do, do you and I forget all the things that God has done for us and instead just complain? And you might argue that it's far worse for, for you and I. We have, we have more revelation. We, we have the coming of Christ, right? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18 we see Asaph condemn them for a particularly heinous sin. He says they, uh, they tested God in their heart. So in Luke 4, uh, we, we read how Satan tempted Jesus by trying to convince him to jump from the top of the temple, saying, you know what? God will not let you hit the ground. And he references a, a promise in one of the Psalms about this. Um, so why don't you just test God, see if he'll really do it? And, you know, jump, prove it. And, and do you remember what Jesus' response there is? He, he actually quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, right? He's remembering scripture, and he says this. He says, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That'd be wrong. It's sinful to put God to the test in the sense of, of prove your, your God by doing such and such. And some of you are probably thinking, well, Malachi 3 says to put God to the test. That's a very specific example where he says, you know what, bring the tithe and see if I don't bless you. See if I, see if I don't return this to you in, in many ways, right? Uh, every other instance in, in, in Scripture tells us that we're not to test the Lord. And so, and so then, right, how do the Israelites here test God in the desert? What do they do wrong here? 
They, they test God by treating God like he's an Uber Eats app. They, they demand particular food that they have this massive craving for, right? Beginning just, we, we, we want food, and, and God rains down bread from the sky. And they're like, this is gross bread, and we're going to put it in our pocket. A lot of things went wrong. Anyway, then they want water, right? And, and God brings water out of a rock. And then they're like, we want meat. They, sounds a lot like our, our kids when Laura's cooking something vegetarian. We want meat. Bring us meat. And, and still, the, the Lord... He's kind to them. He gives them meat. I mean, look at verse 27. I love the way it puts this. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. Here's your meat. Birds just falling from the sky for them to eat. And, and again, what, what about us? Do, do, do you and I put the Lord to the test today? Are we like them here? Are we putting God to the test every time we, we judge his love for us by our current circumstances? God, if you really love me, you'll give me the child I long for. If you really love me, you will heal me from this ailment. If you're really God, do, do this, right? Or, or even just asking God, prove yourself before I will actually believe in you. If you're really God, do this or that. We also test God by intentionally, willingly continue to indulge in any known sin because, well, you've gotten away with it this long. You're going to do anything? Right? You just say to yourself, God's not going to do anything about this. It's never wise or right to test the Lord in these ways. In verse 21, we, we see the first of many instances of God's wrath for their sin that shows up in Psalm 78. We, we don't always feel comfortable talking about God's wrath for sin. It's, it makes us uncomfortable. Like we need to be God's PR. You, you know, kind of tuck the, the wrath thing away. Let's not talk about that. But, but as, as J.I. Packer notes, wrath is the right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator towards moral perversity in the creature. In other words, the expected response of a holy God to unholy sin is indeed wrath. Now I want you to notice something in verse 22 here. Do you see the, the sin that stirred up God's wrath here? And you think, oh, it's going to be something horrible, right? It's, it's, it's murder, right? It's probably murder, right? And you're like, no, it's not murder. Well, then murdering babies then, right? No, that, that's not good. But, but, but what, that's not what angered the Lord here. I think you'll be shocked by this. Look at verse 22. God's anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. That's not even going to make our top ten list, is it? Refusing to believe in God, to trust his saving power, is a sin deserving of God's wrath. And we're like, well, that's just opinion, right? No, it's a sin. A heinous sin, according to God's word. The, the next nine verses lay out more of their sin and more of God's wrath. Uh, you can go read it for fun later if you haven't already. Uh, and so then, how do they respond to all that, that God has done for them? Right, as you go through this whole list. Verse 32 says, In spite of all this, they still sinned. 
that despite his wonders, they did not believe. They, they continued on this destructive course of, of, of sin in their life. And then in verses 34 and 37, we, we see what looks like promising. You're like, oh, yay, they're coming around, right? We're told Israel repented, and they sought God earnestly, and that earnestly really sells it, right? They, they remembered that God was their rock, their most high God, their redeemer, and you think, oh, this sounds like repentance. Finally, they're coming around, but the reality shines forth in the following verse. Look at 36. They flattered God with their mouths. They lied to God with their tongues. In other words, they, they made commitments to God with, with their mouths, but, but not with their hearts. So they're all empty words. Their repentance is not real. You see, true repentance honestly acknowledges sin. It's contrite in hard heart. It is also, it is, it is genuinely intends to turn from that sin. I think we've probably grown pretty weak in that department when we understand our understanding of repentance today. I mean, think, think for a moment. Be honest with yourself. You don't have to say this out loud, but be honest with yourself. What, what does repentance look like in your life day in and day out? You, you feel guilt and, and shame for, for lusting or for using your words to, to hurt another person. But do you really feel the weight of your sin? Right? When, when you're like, I, I shouldn't have done that, or, or repentance, is it, do you seriously intend to not just go and lust again, or, or not go and slaying people with your tongue again? I guess the, the question is, where's our, where's our sensitivity to, to sin today? Do, do we understand how wretched it is? Now, you know, if you're struggling that way, it's, again, always best to be honest, particularly with the Lord. Pray and, and ask the Holy Spirit that he might wash away your apathy to, to restore your, your sensitivity to sin in your life and to, to give you true repentance. Now, despite this, this nasty cycle that we're seeing here, right, the Lord's wrath, the form of discipline, despite their... The repentance in some regard and, and restoration and, and sinning again. And it's this whole cycle. And, and yet God shows them mercy. And we're going to come back to verse 38 in a bit and really look at that in a little more detail. Now, um, at, at this point, we're, we're at verse 40 in this psalm. And here's one of the really odd things about Psalm 78. Uh, in verse 40, the, the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery and, and their sinful ways, it, it all kind of resets. It goes right back to the beginning. It's like, we, didn't you just tell us about the delivery from Egypt? Didn't you just tell us about the time in the wilderness? Um, and it's a little bit of a different angle. It's not word for word or anything like that. Uh, but it is the exact same stories that he's going over. And you wonder, well, wh why does he do that, right? Well, Asaph doesn't tell us why. There's no the making of Psalm 78 to, to go into the background of this, right? But, but perhaps, and, and many believe this, right, that it's a poetic way of displaying the repetitive cycle of it. Right? By just, let's go back to the beginning again, because clearly you didn't get it the first time. Am I making my circle the right direction? I can't tell. Right? It's just that cycle. And, and, and since it's repetitive, we're, we're going to move through it real quickly, right? Uh, verses 40 through 55, they're all about the mighty works that God did in rescuing uh, Israel from, from Egypt. 
And then beginning in verse 56, Asaph reflects on the next generation, right? This is the one that goes a little bit further than the previous story, right? This is the one that actually enters the promised land, that the children of that rebellious and faithless or unfaithful generation, and you think, well, surely they're going to do better. Nope. This new generation sins in the most atrocious of ways. They, they reject the first and most foundational of the Ten Commandments, bowing down in worship to false gods, to, to idols. Right? Thanks for delivering us to the promised land. Now we'll go worship a bunch of idols. And, and what's the result of this? You see it in verse 58. They, they provoked God to anger with their high places. Those were uh, pagan worship spots. They, they moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. It goes on to tell us that God forsook the dwelling in, in Shiloh. That, that's a city in, in Ephraim uh, where, I think I committed to Ephraim, didn't I? Uh, that's a city in Ephraim uh, where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were, were located. And God's wrath is, is kindled against them. You, you see it again beginning in verse 92 or 62, right? It, it's just... To us, it's, it's ugly. But this is the holiness of God's judgment on sin. There's massive deaths. All right? It speaks of the, the widows, not unable to lament even, the, 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 the death of the priests by the swords. There's no wedding songs for the women. And then in verse 64, we, we see what Tremper Longman calls one of the most startling metaphors in the Bible. Sounds like the promotion of a book, doesn't it? One of the most startling metaphors in the Bible. Whereas earlier God seemed to be not doing much in regards to Israel's sin, or doing a little bit here and there, now he is compared to a drunken warrior who has been suddenly awoken from sleep. Tell me that metaphor doesn't bother you a little. It's not saying God is drunk. It's not saying that God is out of control like that. But it, it, the psalmist here is painting this picture of God's wrath. For, for what, what is a drunken soldier like when awoken from sleep? He's dangerous. He's violent. Hearing God compared this way may be incredibly unsettling to us. But remember how evil sin is, and, and let the psalmist paint a yet fuller picture of God is as we move forward. For, for something beautiful actually happens in, in the last stanza here. And this beautiful thing is, is what we call mercy. Look at verse 67. It, it tells us that God, did not, that God did not reject Ephraim because of their sin. Um, sorry, that God did reject Ephraim because of their sin. It tells us that God takes away the prominence, right, from this being the leading tribe. But, but the Lord remains ever faithful to his enduring covenant. That though he has every reason to do so, God doesn't abandon his, his chosen nation completely. He doesn't just destroy Israel and just be done with it. You see, while Ephraim is rejected, Judah is chosen. That's mercy. But while Shiloh is abandoned, Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, is now chosen. That is mercy. The Ark of the Covenant is taken there. That The proper place of worship, the place where God would make his presence known, is going to be in the temple that is built there in, in Judah and Jerusalem. 
He goes on to explain how, how God chose David, elevating him from a, a shepherd of sheep to a shepherd of, of the nation as he sets him over Israel as king. And, and in this, we've, we find this foreshadowing to the future descendant of David who is going to call himself the good shepherd. The, the descendant who is going to sit on the throne of David forever. Going to rule and guide his people perfectly. Of course, you, you know the shadow belongs to Jesus, our Lord. And with that, this really weird psalm comes to an end, Psalm 78. So, so what are we to make of all this, right? And the first thing is this. First, verse 38 says, I told you we come back to this. Yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Atone, he pays for it, right? God's, God's mercy is the only reason that Israel, Israel remained at all. And, and God's mercy is the only reason that there is a Christian church today at all. You see, while it is true that God is absolutely wrathful towards sin, it is also true that God is gracious in providing a Savior for us, a way of atonement. And, and God does, doesn't just turn his head and ignore the sin. Like, we'll just, don't worry about that. What do you know? He's holy. He can't do that. That's the part we struggle with sometimes, Right? He can't just do that, but, but he does something wonderful, something far better than that, right? God has sent Jesus to atone for our sin, to atone for your sin. And, and of course, Jesus does so with his death upon the cross. And so the lingering question here is, will you look to Jesus with trust? Will you look to Jesus with faith? And if so, if that's you, then God's proclamation in Hebrews 8.12 is for you. It says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, that's sin, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the reality for us. The the second application of, of Psalm 78 is this, tell the next generation of the mighty works of God. This means that you and I must know the mighty works of God. We, we must know where we see it in Scripture if we're going to be able to explain this. We must know what, you know, what Christ has done on the cross if we're going to be able to tell others about it. We must be able to, to see God's work in church history in our own lives that we are actually paying attention. Look what the Lord has done and the way he's answered pr- prayers in so many ways. And then it means that we actually speak up and we share these things. Kids, if, if, you, don't, if you don't know the story of how your parents have come to faith in, in, in Christ, ask them today. And parents, don't do that thing where you apologize, you right? Some of you are like, I grew up in the church, and I just, as long as I can remember, I believe, praise the Lord. There are no boring testimonies. There really aren't. We should stop apologizing for them. That's the way the Lord does it sometimes, right? We're like, well, I wish I was hooked on crack so I could tell you a great story or something. You don't need that. God works in wonderful ways. Maybe that is the story. Praise the Lord. Maybe it's boring. Praise the Lord. Children, ask your parents about that. Um, that Tevin DeYoung gives some advice to all who wish to see the next generation love the Lord. And, and he says this. He says, if we're to grab the next generation with the gospel, we must grab them with passion. And to grab them with passion, to, to grab them with passion, we must be gripped with it ourselves. The world needs to see Christians burning, not with self-righteous fury at the sliding morals in our country, but with passion for God. And your, your story, doesn't matter what it is, what, what is your, your love for God, does that, does that shine through? 
the way you talk about the Lord, the way you, you share stories, the way you, you care for other people, and, and so on and so on, right? And, and all this ties into our, our third bit of application, which is remember the Lord. As you read through the, the Old and New Testaments, take notice how often we are told to remember the Lord, or the opposite, right? Do not forget the Lord. Do not uh, forget this or that, all these different things. And, and so remember the Lord. Re- remember who God is, what God has done, what God is doing in your life. E- even the fact that God is sustaining your breath right now, re- remember that because we are so prone to forget that. We are. My, my dad had some procedure last week put him in like a tube-like thing, uh, and he was there for an hour, and, and, and he's just getting some tests done. But um, he, he told me when he came out, he, he walked outside, and he saw the sky and the clouds and the warmth. This is down in Houston. And, and he's like, I just appreciated the fact that I was breathing in a way that I hadn't in a very long time. To, to recognize even, even that's a mighty work of the Lord, that, that you are breathing right now. Remembering the Lord and, and what he does for us, that, that's the key to being grateful to the Lord. And, and another part of remembering the Lord is remembering his word and, and seeking to live o- obediently to it. Right? And, and to genuinely repent when we don't obey. Because we remember the Lord. Because we remember that our Lord is abundantly merciful and, and we remember that a broken and contrite oh, uh, heart, O oh God, he will not despise. We have a gracious Lord. All that we see, the, the wrath of God, right, as, it's, as Israel experiences it in this psalm, in their history, that's what we deserve. When we get Christ, we get forgiveness, we get eternity. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we thank you for Christ, for the Messiah. We, we thank you for the long-awaited heir of David. We, we thank you for Jesus, who is indeed the good shepherd of your people. Father, may the truths of this psalm renew our wonder at your eternal, sovereign work of redemption in our souls. May we not forget you. May we not forget the redemption that you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.